Mixed Media Movies. And welcome back to Mixed Media. This is Mixed Media Movies. Where we're talking about the Oscar movies this week. Um, pretty big week for cinema with the Oscars and everything. Maybe not so much of a big big deal with the ratings and everything for the Oscars, you know, for, you know, the average person probably hasn't watched it, but a pretty big deal nonetheless in terms of understanding where the industry is going, um, where institutional money is going, the notable people who are my, who might be coming up and all this kind of stuff is, is all very interesting. Um, so I'll be discussing sort of the a, a few thoughts I have about the award ceremony as a whole. I remember last year I like probably ranted way too long about just how horrible uh, the Oscars has become over time. Not that it was anything, you know, perfect before, but, you, you know, definitely losing its uh, its appeal to most people. Uh, but this time I wanted to take a targeted thing. And it's mostly what I said on, on Discord, you know, really thinking about it and, and understanding that things don't have to be the way they are. So that's where I'm going to go with it. I'm going to start with that. Then go down into the Best Picture nominees and some other thoughts about some other films that were nominated from other things. And I probably won't do more than a few sentences of review for some of these films because they're not worth talking about for too, too long. Okay. So, yes. So the Oscars as an award show. So I didn't watch it as a disclaimer. Um, I didn't watch it and I... Actually, um, you know, I made a conscious decision to basically refuse to watch it until, you know, this is my personal little protest, not <laughs> not saying there should be some social movement or anything like that um, to follow me or anything like that. So you do as you please. But personally, I can't really watch the Oscars for more than 10 minutes without getting really mad very quickly. And the reason is, is because cinema is not front and center. And I really don't care about like... You know, uh, I I don't mind that, you know, we have celebrities taking the lime, limelight, you know, because they're actors, right? You know, they're a huge part of what we do in cinema and that they're big figures is not something wrong to me. I, 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 I would love to celebrate their craft as well. And I don't even mind that we care about what they're wearing that day. I mean, fashion is in of itself a whole world of, you know, artistic creativity that I have no understanding of at all. But I can appreciate why some people care about that. What bothers me the most is when it comes down to sit down and talk movies that we're not interested at all in, you know, promoting good craft to, you know, audiences that actually understand the craft well enough to understand what is good and what is bad. And also, you know, who want to feel as though cinema is something bigger than these people instead of just about these people, you know. So, yeah, until that changes, I don't think I can watch without, like, getting really agitated, you know, the Oscars, because it's something that I remember watching as a little kid and feeling like it was actually about the movies, even if there was a lot of celebrity drama around it. It still was at its core more about the movies than it was about the particular people. So, uh, you know, and you can see that in the way the Oscar speeches are done and everything like that. Everything is sort of changed in tone uh but there's hope there's a lot of hope here because i have a lot to say about some of the best picture nominees uh some unsus un un, un uh well i should say surprising hope so we'll get to that in the end but yeah we've there's there's work work that needs to be done so the thing that uh you know really caught my attention was i was listening to uh someone who's around like 
45 years old talk about like you know some of their childhood experiences watching the oscars and then growing up how it became a family tradition even after starting our own family to sit down and watch the oscars have like a bingo card or not a bingo card like a you know a fill out card of who everyone thinks is going to win beforehand fold it up you know put it away so that no one can cheat or tamper and uh Everyone would be excited to watch all the films before going uh, going in, or, or at least a lot of them before going in and seeing who would be right about the best stuff and then arguing afterwards about the merits of the picks. That, to me, is good cinema culture. Even if, you know, this is an ordinary family, by the way. This is not like, you know, a family of filmmakers or like film junkies in any particular way this is just a regular old family and i think this is the sentiment about most people that he feels like he can't watch anymore because he feels like the entire thing is about lecturing him when they don't know him right <laughs> and it becomes more self-aggrandizing and you know than anything else and it's just not about the movies anymore and then when you actually go watch the movies they're not very good which I can definitely attest to this time around. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're just, they don't, they don't feel like they're doing, they're adding to your life anymore. Even if they don't have the vocabulary to say in what ways they don't add to their life anymore. There's this overall feeling that movies don't really add anything to people's lives, even if it's been adding to their lives from the time they were five until 45. And now all of a sudden it's kaput. So we'll, we'll we'll talk about that. So I, I I thought about what he was saying, and then I thought about the idea of the old sort of tradition because he was saying that before it used to be that seeing all the films that were nominated was not un was not hard to do. Like you probably would have wanted to see all the all the nominees by the time the Oscars came around anyway because these were the films of the year. You know these these got critical acclaim they got a lot of hype from audience and critics and so they were popular films but there also were great films by all accounts so i went ahead and i i, I looked at uh you know older nominees and so uh if i look back here i have, I have the uh, wikipedia open of uh the academy award winners by year so this year we have coda belfast don't look up drive my car dune king richard Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, and West Side Story. Now, this is the modern listing in that we have 10. You know, if you go back, I think, six or seven years, you have it goes down to five. And that makes a lot more sense. I mean, if you have five films, and those five films are popular but potential classics, you know, at least some of them are, are certainly going to be classics, you know, moving moving forward that audience members would have a good chance of seeing almost all of them and so would be interested in the results for almost all of them because they just went to see them, naturally speaking. So if we go back, let's pick out a random... So on the Discord, I picked out one where there were still 10 uh, nominees. Actually, it goes back to 2010, apparently. But uh, in 2010, we have The King's Speech, 127 Hours, Black Swan, The Fighter, Inception, the Kids Are All Right, The Social Network, Toy Story 3, True Grit, and Writer's Bone. Now, as a percent of films in a cadre that became classic, this is a high percent. Like, you know, that became films that are, are, are films that people will be referencing for a long time. I mean, we have The King's Speech, we have Black Swan, we have Inception, we have The Social Network. 
and we have Toy Story 3, and we have True Grit. So six out of the ten are films that are impactful to cinema as a whole and audiences at the same time, which is something that I think a lot of people are insinuating we can't have. We can't have both the audience loving the films and being well exposed to them and also a good celebration of film as if they're somehow mutually exclusive, you know, that, that the audience just doesn't understand good films. Well, I mean, I mean, even the ones that aren't instant classics, like 127 Hours, um, let's see here, uh, The Fighter, I think those two films were popular back then anyway, and uh, they're films that people still can name today. Like, oh, remember that film 127 Hours? I did this, I, I, I didn't know this film um, from the time period, but I said 127 Hours out loud, and uh, my wife, Steph, She's like, oh, yeah, I remember that movie, and here's what it's about. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> you know, most people probably can't name the Oscar films of this year, right? So that's that's a big, big difference. You know, uh, I'll just do one more. 2009 is, is also, you know, pretty shocking. The Hurt Locker, Avatar, The Blind Side, District 9, An Education, Inglorious Bastards, Precious, based on the novel Push by Sapphire. That one's really random to me. <laughs> uh, a Serious Man, Up and Up in the Air. So out of these films, I mean, a lot of these films are just, like, canonical. Like, we have The Hurt Locker, Avatar, uh, The Blind Side, District 9, Inglorious Bastards, and Up. Six again out of the ten are films that I would say are impactful, you know, to to cinema. They're, they're historical films. And six out of ten, you know, is is a pretty high ratio, I would say, for for the nominees going forward. And it's not as if in the time we would have understood them as classics per se, you know, but they stood the test of time. Six out of ten stood the test of time. And then you go instead, you go to look at last year's Oscars, and you find uh, uh, Nomadland, The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari. Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, The Trial of the Chicago 7. And I would say in terms of understanding the film community, I think the only one that has a chance or the only few that have a chance of becoming sort of canonical are Nomadland, the winner, and uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, then there's some buzz about some of these other ones, but some of them feel sort of recency bias E, if that makes sense. And so that's a big difference. And so all I want to say is if you want to advocate for a better Oscars, I think the best place to start might be just say, look, we do, there is not actually this grand barrier between the artist and the audience, especially for cinema. This is, you know, this is the art form that in here in the United States is pretty much like our art form, right? We invented it. We created it. And we are the headquarters of it in the entire world. And so Americans are actually pretty well attuned to watching films. It's a pretty Americana thing to do, go watch movies, you know? Not to say that it's not a, you know, a thing internationally. It's just, it's definitely a thing that is very special to the American imagination. And so to recover that, I think all we need to do is to say, no, there's not actually this magical divide between the audience and, and you know, audiences of all kinds love avatar you know love i don't know name whatever you know best picture nominee from like you know uh five plus years ago because it really is that recent that this divide 
you know, started happening was around five years ago. Despite the ceremony, perhaps this is the first place to start. So that's just the little thought I want I wanted to put out there. Thinking about both what movies do well in, to audiences and also what movies are exemplify the craft the most. Not a popularity contest, but like I said on the Discord, a culturally cultivated contest. We can You can have your cake and eat it too, is, is the, the short of it. Okay, so now into the actual films. So <laughs> I, I really started, I really watched these films in the wrong order because it got increasingly depressing for me as I was watching them. And then I had a few surprises at the end, which was, which was a good thing. Um, <laughs> so the first Oscar movie I watched was The Power of the Dog. I'll go over it later, but I really did not like that film. And that was really not a good start. But one interesting thing, as I was reviewing the list of films that I had watched, because I haven't watched them all, is that a lot of them have like have to do with familial stuff. I don't know why that is, or if that's like some there's some grander reason for that. But they're all like f- like family oriented dramas, like at the core of them, um, which is very interesting to me. But instead of starting with the order that I watched them, I want to start with one film in particular that I watched today that literally I leaped out of my couch where I watched it after I finished watching it out of joy. And that was Coda, the best picture winner and the upset, which we'll be talking about, the upset of what should have happened uh, for a best picture. So let's just talk about Coda real quick. Before I do that, just so you understand my compare, where my comparisons are coming from, I have not seen King Richard because I, I was going to see it today, but it, it just was too long and I was kind of tired. <laughs> Drive My Car, because it was too hard to find how to see it. Um, Nightmare Alley uh, wasn't worth my time. West Side Story, uh, I love Spielberg, but also not really worth my time in, in, this, in this circumstance because it's not an original film. And uh, Licorice Pizza, because I missed its run in, in the theater and uh, they don't have it on streaming as far as I know any place convenient. So uh, I have not reviewed, I have not seen any of those. So I've seen half of them. So that's the context. So anyway, CODA, a little summary. CODA stands for Child of Death, Deaf Adults. Funny anecdote. Last night, I intended to watch CODA, but I watched the wrong CODA. So here's how that happened. <laughs> I read the, the one sentence synopsis of the CODA that won Best Picture. Because I didn't want to know anything. I, you know, if I know I'm going to watch a movie, I don't, you know, ingest anything about it. I just try to watch it cold. And the synopsis for Coda says, basically, deaf parents, uh, music, something, something, music, right? And I watched a different Coda <laughs> by accident that came out in 2020, which is funny enough, starring Patrick Stewart. Last night, I realized that about a third of the way through that this was the wrong film because I was like, where are the deaf people? <laughs> but it was about music because guess what? Coda is also a musical term and there happened to be a film <laughs> released a year before this one called Coda with a star-studded cast <laughs> that I accidentally thought was the film. I ended up finishing the uh, the wrong film Coda starring Patrick Stewart. It was a bad film. It was very bad. Um, oh, what was that about? I feel like I've heard of this, but... It was about, it was about a famous pianist who develops stage fright is like the 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 really high high level view um of that film hmm. and, <laughs> but, okay i really I, 
I don't know it. Yeah. Um, Patrick Stewart was great in that film. Really riveting. Literally everything about the film is the opposite of riveting. I found out Katie Holmes is a horrible actress. That's a whole other story. Um, I ended up finishing it just because, you know, I was like a third of the way through it. I was like, all right, fine, I'll just finish it. I can't pick up a new movie anyway because it's late at night. So so this morning I watched Coda. And Coda is a story about a focusing on a high school girl in Massachusetts who is the daughter of deaf parents and has a deaf brother as well. So, you know, assumption is it's a genetic thing. Um, both parents are deaf, deaf. And she happens to have a deaf brother, but she herself is not deaf, so she can hear. Really, the plot isn't as important as the themes that it, it ends up exploring, which is which is the interesting part. But again, just a little, just to get a little bit a little bit deeper. Basically, her parents run a fishing business, or actually, her whole family runs a fishing business out of the docks of wherever they are in Massachusetts. And they are on the poorer side, you know, sort of uh, hand, uh, sorry, paycheck to paycheck in terms of functioning. And she goes to a high school that's, you know, got all kinds of kids from all kinds of backgrounds, etc. But she's sort of bullied, doesn't have that many friends because when she started school, public school, she had sort of a, a lisp or a speaking impediment because she wasn't used to speaking out loud because she communicates with her hands, with her family. That's to say, now that she's older, a senior in high school, you know, she's grown past that, but the stigma has sort of stayed with her um, as sort of an outsider. She works with her family on this local business, and this family is having particular trouble as of late because of basically regulations that are being tacked on to fishers in the area for environmental concerns, et cetera, et cetera, such that it's uh, jeopardizing their livelihood. And uh, she also ends up falling in love with singing. Now she's, we get the idea that she already knows that she likes to sing, you know, going into this film. But as the film progresses, it, you know, turns into a passion as she joins the local uh, choir, or not the local, the school choir, learns a few things that, immediately turn her singing from good to amazing and uh you know because she was completely untrained before and just absolutely falls in love with music which is a smart writing device right because her parents and her brother cannot hear so that's 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 the whole that's the gist of the world that we're in in terms of tone i would say it's kind of i see some reviews mentioning like a Disney Channel movie, that's not entirely wrong, <laughs> I would say. I wouldn't say that's like, you know, an unfair, you know, comparison in terms of overall tone. It's very much an endearing family movie. And it's very much so high key in the way it's lit, very sort of uh, vanilla in the way that it does its cinematography, very sort of interested in, you know, sort of the teenage drama a little bit. But putting that all aside, well, not putting that all aside, taking that all and really elevating them to their maximum, in my opinion. So take your typical, you know, high key lighting sort of scenes and feel good sort of scenes and make them the best they could possibly be. Take your acting, you know, your actors, you know, from these sort of Disney Channel movies and actually make them Oscar worthy actors, you know, <laughs> and take the entire writing, which is nothing to me like a Disney Channel movie. Um, if, if there's any comparison, it would only be in tone. The writing is 
stellar and phenomenal in of itself and brings us on a fantastic endearing journey through what is just family about family now what's so good about this film and why did i leap out of my chair it's not the best film i've ever seen it's not like you know it's not going to break my top 20 or anything like that and in fact it probably wouldn't have struck me so hard if i hadn't seen so many terrible movies beforehand (laughs) um (laughs) but what's so good about it is that it actually treats its audience with dignity and treats all of its characters with dignity as well so it doesn't treat you like you're stupid It doesn't treat you like, you know, it's smarter than you or has something so interesting to say that it's going to, you know, spend 10 minutes at a time at random, you know, close up shots of objects, you know, and I don't say that to say that, that, you know, I'm, I, I love artisan stuff. That's not the complaint. It's when you're artisan, quote unquote, without reason, which is just, you know, that's just pretension. You know, that's not that's not being artisan at all. This film does none of that. And instead, it focuses on universal values that literally everyone can connect with when they watch it. There's not a single human being on this planet that would watch this and not feel some endearing emotion <laughs> after after uh, after finishing the film. And the reason why is because it tackles a broad spectrum of relatable problems or relatable tensions it's about growing up. It's about challenging circumstances. It's not about deafness itself, really, as much as it's concerned with what kind of interesting problems and family dynamic does that cause, right? It's not about saying, oh, look at the good guys and look at the bad guys, as much as it's about, oh, look at us human beings, try to grow up, you know, and, you know, and all these challenges that we have when we're growing up. And to boot has beautiful singing i don't know who this main actress is before watching this this film she can sing in my humble opinion like i was like shook when she opened her mouth the first time <laughs> for sure and uh there's some just lovely stuff that 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 you know lovely well-crafted musical scenes that put together her singing with all this imperfect singing of her of her high school students but also all comes together in such an endearing way. It's, it's very hard to explain. And I just was so happy by the end of it. Big smile on my face because just a solid, good, good film. A few themes that are explored are about, you know, sort of class. So, you know, you can imagine if you're wanting to enter the music world, there are different kinds of people than, that are your family. So that that causes like sort of like a, a, a rift of understanding between her family and her. Um, there's also uh, disabilities. So, you know, her family can't, you know, communicate very well. Even in the fisherman space, you know, they're sort of outcasts among other fishermen because no one can understand each other. There's uh, even themes about the nuclear family in light of sort of uh, the government, right? So like, you know, what what role does what rule does government have in, in, in everyone's everyday life? And uh, there are themes about the ability to forgive your family, um, about love um, and what kinds of households produce a loving environment, about privilege even, like, but in a much more intelligent way in, 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 like a, in like a what does privilege actually even mean, you know? 
in this context because here we have a girl who has blind parents who is in a in a poor household, but her parents are madly in love. In fact, that's played for humor multiple multiple times uh, in interesting ways. Um, uh, but her parents are are madly in love, and she has a whole family, even if they argue sometimes. Whereas her love interest does not have a whole family, and he's got a broken household, even though he's richer and and doesn't have deaf parents. You know, so there's this this tension happening there that's more interesting than just saying you have privilege and you don't, right? <laughs> Much more interesting in that way. And it really upset the natural winner. And I understand now why it was the natural winner, which was the power of the dog. The power of the dog was the natural winner because it was the return of a director who was critically acclaimed from a movie called The Pianist. Uh, she had been gone for, I think, 10 or 15 years from from filmmaking. She came back, back, made The Power of the Dog. And also the themes in The Power of the Dog are interesting for whatever reason to Hollywood types, uh, because I didn't think there's anything even interesting about those themes that was teased out in the film at all. <laughs> and it had a A-list uh, list of actors, Benedict Cumberbatch, who I respect, but in this film was not, and The Power of the Dog was not very good and a, a few others and sort of had this air of pretension of good film TM, if you get what I'm saying, which is, Oh, it's, we're going slower. Oh, show not tell quote unquote, you know, all those kinds of things. And so I would have bet if I were to bet money, I would have bet on the power of the dock any day over Coda, even though I liked Coda better. This is a huge deal, a huge, huge deal that Coda won. Because Coda is unlike any of the other films that I watched in the sense that it really only has a few predicting factors for, for, for it winning the Oscars. And I can only name a few of them. And, and this is not to say, you know, we, should, we shouldn't care or should care about these things. I'm just talking about what the Academy cares about. The Academy for this film, this film is a Sundance film, which is of very low important, importance to who wins, who wins the Oscars. It's about deaf people, I guess. So there's that sort of like aspect of different people that's, uh, you know, I guess in, important in predicting these things. Although that wasn't even the point of the film. And in fact, the film kind of subverts those ideas by talking about the idea of falling victim to your own problems and how that can be extremely problematic, you know, in of itself. Like, you know, viewing your life in a, in a negative bubble was a problem that her, her family has, you know, and that they had to overcome in, in a few areas in this film. So that wasn't even the point here. And last one, I guess is important, is that it was a female director. And that was the only one that I can think of that actually matters in terms of prediction, you know, you know, for winning the Oscar. Unlike The Power of the Dog, who has a female director who is commenting on masculinity. So we have a completely different, we have a completely upside down version of what would normally win the Oscar. You know, this straight up, anyone can enjoy this film film, and learn something from it. And that to me is amazing. And I hope that, I hope what that means, and I've, I've, I've from, there are people inside Hollywood that I, I listen to and, you know, talk about their experiences, um, talk about what's going on behind the scenes. You know, a few people say that there's a lot of warring happening within the Hollywood sort of executive, you know, uh, level. That there's a lot of warring about what kinds of things do they want to make 
And I've specifically heard about this this happening uh, particularly strong in Lucasfilm and in uh, in Pixar. Those are the two places where I've heard the most from. But I've also heard whisperings that's happening everywhere. That there are a lot of people who are craftsmen who are really upset with the direction that movies are going. They don't want to speak out on it on, let's say, Twitter or something for fear that they're going to lose their jobs or something like that. But that they're doing whatever they can to try to rescue the art form, you know, whatever. And I sort of discounted this because I was like, yeah, whatever. I mean, how how would I know whether that's happening or not? You know, you're telling me, but, you know, who knows? Um, but this is the first piece of evidence that maybe that, that there's something to that. Maybe there's something to that because enough people, enough people took away the natural choice and replaced it with one that had counter themes to the natural choice, which is bizarre. So <laughs> that's the hope. That's the that's the big hope that I wanted to uh, put out there uh, against the negative view of, of what the Oscars currently is. So that's the most I'll talk about any particular film. Now we're just going to compare every film to Coda, basically. <laughs> oh, and if you're curious, on Letterboxd, I gave uh, Coda a four out of five, which is a really great score. I, again, not a legendary film, in my opinion. It may probably not even a, a classic, per se, um, but just a really, really good uh, film. Oh, and I forgot to say also, the dad's performance, phenomenal. And he won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. I literally, like, afterwards, was like, the dad was freaking awesome. Did he win the Oscar? I looked it up. He won the Oscar. So that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> I, I just, so I don't know if this is 100% accurate, but from what I was reading, it's only been streamed, you know, one million times, which is absolutely nothing. Agreed. Most of his films, yeah. Most of his films are like I think Power of a Dog is three million, and Don't Look Up is ten million, which means they're like very low numbers. But even like within that very low, you know, thing, like ten times more views for Don't Look Up than Coda. Oh yeah, for sure. And uh, the problem is this film, as far as I could tell, was a very tightly released film. It was released pretty much exclusively on Apple Apple TV, although it was shown in theaters and I think is showing again. I'm not sure if that's spawned by uh, awards season or whatnot. I have no idea. But this film was kind of done dirty on distribution because of the push to streaming. And I think this film would have been a perfect cinematic, cinema film, a perfect film to go to the movies to see Everything from the big sound of the theater to the big screen to bringing your friends and family with you would have worked flawlessly for this film. And unfortunately, it didn't get that huge wide release in the, in the cinema. And I've talked about it before on the show. There are many forces that force that to happen these days that despite the economic reasoning not really being fully there, you know, forcing things to lose more money than they had to just to try to drive things to streaming. Um, that's where we're at with things, which really sucks. It's really sad, but it is what it is. So the first film that came after my, uh, to mind other than, you know, well, the first film that came after mind after I watched Coda was actually Encanto, even though it wasn't, uh, wasn't um, a nominee for best picture. What really bothered me after I watched this film is, so your excuse for having bad singing was you needed good actors, but this film had both. So what's your excuse, Disney, for the horrible singing in Encanto? For what, exactly? 
Like I like I literally watching this main character in this film flawlessly act. You know, not you know, I, maybe you know, maybe not the best person on screen, but but she. There's nothing I would change about her performance. Great job that she did, and she also can sing. So my question is, what the heck happened with Encanto Disney? Because you essentially told me without telling me that you had to do it because you needed you know voice actors of a certain caliber and you you cast it for voice acting more than you cast it for singing but why because those aren't mutually exclusive clearly if uh, this much less budget heavy film could do it so that's my complaint there with uh, Encanto uh, I don't think there's any excuse and so I gave that film a 2.5 out of 5 which is actually a neutral score you know it just means that is roughly forgettable film for me. I think the music was the most disappointing part by far in Encanto, which is the part I want to enjoy because I wanted to enjoy some Colombian music throughout. And they did some weird stuff uh, with uh, with their their songs where they, I guess, tried to do like pop Colombian music here and there, but it really wasn't even that. It was just generic, you know, uh, you know, uh, pop music. Nothing Colombian about a lot of these songs. Um, <laughs> so the whole thing, you know, I have strong feelings about Encanto for another day. The next film I'll talk about is the worst film that I watched and potentially one of the worst films I've ever watched in my entire life, which was Don't Look Up. <laughs> now, the saddest part here is that Don't Look Up was made for $190 million, which puts it as the, at the most expensive Netflix film ever made. A record that it should not be proud of. But it is like that because it has literally every A-list actor you could possibly demand just to shove into your project to give it some sort of legitimacy when the film doesn't even understand how to even make, I don't know, a competent movie, like a movie that like functions. Is it is it truly the worst something you've ever seen? I mean, like Birdemic? Is it worse than that? <laughs> See, I grappled with this. Uh, that's why I say one of the worst. See, Birdemic is probably worse. But the thing is, I actually have to think about it, which is the, which is the biggest problem. <laughs> that shouldn't happen with an Oscars film. I shouldn't have to think about whether it's worse than Birdemic. <laughs> this film is so unorganized. And here's the worst part. It was nominated for Best Editing. That's the part that gets me the most is that not only was it nominated because it fits the Oscar, you know, Oscar bait, you know, thing to the T. You know, it's probably the most Oscar bait movie out of them all. But you don't have to give it best editing nomination as well just to, to jab the knife into anyone with a brain <laughs> to know that this movie was very poorly made. Like, I remember looking at reviews when I was deciding which Oscar films to focus on. I was looking at some of the comments on Letterboxd for uh, Don't Look Up. A lot of people were saying the editing was horrible. And I was like, okay, you know, I mean, it, it still was nominated for an Oscar. So how bad could it possibly be? Oh, boy. Two hours and 39 minutes, I believe, of nonsense. Literal nonsense. Like, <laughs> Is it that long? It's that long. And oh, oh, okay. So so that, that colors what I said about the music even more because I didn't realize the film was that long with that little music. Exactly. So we start, we open up the film 
with a fun music bit with the camera zipping around and this really meme like acting from uh, DiCaprio and uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Jennifer Lawrence doing this really like, you know, sort of like hokey performance that was kind of, could be funny. You know, I mean, it wasn't really that funny, but it, it was lighthearted. And we and the music was was well done to uh, the choreography of the camera and the choreography of the actors. Then we get long periods of silence afterwards in terms of music and not very much else going for it uh, <laughs> besides. To tell you why the runtime is so long, here are the types of things that pad the runtime. Whole new sequences, like literally, like a whole new sequence multiple times in this film. So we'll cut to the TV and we'll watch the whole bit, like from beginning of the, the segment to the end. For no reason. Like, literally nothing in it adds anything to the film. <laughs> Comment based on the um, the titles of the track on the soundtrack. You know, seeing the length of it and then, like, seeing, you know, the, the tracks, like, give you a very good sense, at least I think, uh, what the plot is. I assume this was, like, a like an hour, like, ten-minute movie. Like, a really tight plot. Like, it seems like there's, like, a very few elements to the plot that, that go on, you know? And, like... Oh, yeah. That's how it should have been. This should have been a maximum 90-minute movie. Maximum 90 minutes, <laughs> you know? Uh, and it just is filler. And I don't understand why, because two hours and 39 minutes is abnormally long for, for a movie of this type. So, like, why the heck did you force it to be two hours and 39 minutes when it didn't have to be? Whole new segments, literally from... The beginning of the animation of the start of the new segment to when they say, well, that's a wrap for that story. Now on to the next one. The whole segment. <laughs> and if you can't tell, it, it drove me insane. <laughs> so we get whole new segments. We get stock footage randomly appearing in this film. Literal stock footage. Like literally, I could probably go to uh, um, what's it called? Shutterstock.com and probably pull up some of these clips that they used for these montages of birds bees i don't know asteroids like literal meaningless stuff that just like slapped together rhinos fighting no semblance for why these images are being strung together it's just we're trying to say look at life here's a bunch of random stock footage and we're not just going to flash this across the screen for 10 seconds we're going to spend five minutes <laughs> on, on on stock footage. Why does this get any music too? Probably not, right? There's probably more music than than the rest of the film in these <laughs> in these random segments. Whoops, that was a random. Uh, here, let me cut back. There we go. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't even remember. You know, I, there must have been like two or three of these massive montages. And I think a lot of them had a lot of their uh, diegetic sounds still in them. So I could hear the waves crashing. And so, I, I, yeah, I don't remember fully, but I can imagine the score being there for the first, like, minute of uh, of the montage. And then going into just the, the waves crashing and the birds chirping. and Just meaningless stuff. So if you don't know, this movie is supposed to be about a bunch of scientists who find out that an asteroid's about to hit Earth, trying to convince the president to do something about it. That is it. That is literally the entire film. And they're failing to do so because the president's an idiot, basically. Or there's a whole bunch of motivating factors that aren't, you know, saving the planet. Which, 
to try to understand what this film is trying to say, you know, I, I yeah, I knew what this film was was going to try to say beforehand, right? It was going to be an overt political commentary on the last, I don't know, five years of politics or something like that. You know, it was going to be about, um, you know, global warming and how we're all idiots for not doing X, right? I knew that was going to happen, right? I did not understand that this film would not even be able to communicate that effectively. <laughs> it's like you couldn't even communicate your satire. Like it was insane. I was like, literally, you're, you're, you're connecting images that don't make sense together. They're literally contradictory. And I have no idea why I should even trust the people that you set up as the main characters. Literally, the reason why we're supposed to believe the end of the world is happening is because we happen to be following these set of characters instead of these set of characters. Why on earth? Like, that th doesn't make your point at all. Like, literally makes zero sense at all why, why we're doing this. And it, it just... Uh, horrible, horrible film and horrible acting, by the way, from some people who should be better, <laughs> be a lot better than what they are in this film. It's it's oof. We, we, we get at the end of the film. Spoiler alert, I guess, if you're going to torture yourself by watching this, um, <laughs> we get at the end a scene where all the characters, I guess, learn the value of life, which is not in preoccupying oneself with the with with the end of the world, but with sitting down with your family and friends for one last dinner. We just get them sitting there, eating dinner, talking about nothing meaningful. These people have some of these people have just met each other a few days ago, and they want to spend their last moments eating some random dinner <laughs> while an asteroid is literally landing. And they're just like, yeah, whatever. It's, this whole film is just nonsense. It, nothing in it makes sense. None of the character motivations make sense. It is horrible. It was, if I didn't have to review it, I would have literally turned it off after probably 20 minutes, which I don't do. No matter how bad the film is, I always feel motivated to finish it because I want to consume the whole piece of art. This was a challenge to not just turn it off because it was just that bad. So... Worst Oscar nominee of all time, probably. Um, <laughs> and uh, that did not yeah, go over well with me. I, I, was, I was terrified of the rest of the films I would watch. So there's that. Uh, bloated is the word I would use. Uh, and boring and pretentious still somehow, while also not being satirical at all. Like not even making a point. Oh, and it teaches you, oh, your response to stress should be taking Xannies, apparently. But anyway, that's a whole other, that's a whole other topic. <laughs> Then we have uh, The Power of the Dog, which is the first film that I watched, <clears throat> which was um, also tedious, but in a lot of different ways. So whereas Don't Look Up was a lot of just useless scenes that should have been cut out and chopped at the editing floor that didn't mean anything, didn't add to anything. The Power of the Dog, there are no scenes, I guess, were useless in the grand scheme of the whole film, but there's just a lot of wasted time over nothing. So it was tedious in a little bit of a different way. The Power of the Dog is a film about a family. Do you remember what state they're in, Ben? Uh, is it like Montana? Montana, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Montana. A family in Montana who are ranchers, basically. It sort of calls back to westerns, I guess, in in some senses. You know, these are cowboys, and uh, these are people of varying backgrounds, which is interesting. So we have. Uh, the mom of a boy who's 
spoiler, 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 whose husband committed suicide, and then we have... Uh, it's only a spoiler. That's like in, given to you in like the first two minutes of the film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Along with everything. Exactly. Um, we have Benedict Cumberbatch's character, who is the brother of a of a. I forget what his title. What is what is his job? I don't know. He's like a, he's a manager of some sort, basically. I don't know. He's the owner of the ranch. Um, I think they they're like co owners of it, but like the other brother does like all the managerial stuff. And yeah, he does all the actual like hands on stuff. Yeah, exactly. So there are two brothers, you know, one's a hands-on guy. The other one's sort of a managerial type. The managerial type ends up uh, courting the mother of, spoiler, 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 of of, of the kid. And, uh, you know, we end up uh, seeing all that ensues afterwards. The kid makes an unlikely, unlikely friendship with the rude uh, handyman type uh, dude who's Benedict Cumberbatch's character who, spoiler, 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 is gay. <laughs> shocking revelation in the middle of this film. And it, it is really utterly not shocking at all. <laughs> no. It is transparently obvious from the very, very, very beginning of this film. Exactly, but it it's played as if it's a a plot twist in the in the film uh, in the way that it's exposed, which is just you're not that clever. I'm sorry, <laughs> it's not that clever. Okay, so that's the gist of the film. Now, this film was a lot of nothing. Basically, it wanted to talk about I guess toxic masculinity, I guess, but it had nothing to say about masculinity at all. Pretty much, it just kind of presented different broken people which at the end of the day came off as different broken people, not <laughs> toxic masculinity or whatever. Uh, not really any particular meditation on masculinity other than over-sexualizing it, which was interesting. Um, <laughs> and then there was, uh, oh yeah, and about, you know, being closeted and being lonely um, while your brother, you know, has a wife and, and, and you have no one in your life, you know, you're lonely, um, which that's pretty much the complexity that there is there. That, that's pretty much it. Um, <laughs> um, and oh, there's a big plot twist at the end, I guess, if you didn't see that coming as well, like, you know, from 10 billion miles away. <laughs> I mean, if you didn't get that from literally the first shot of, oh dear, it's, that's given in the first shot and in the first, literally also the first line of dialogue. It's so it's so bad. Yeah, you know, the kid has, you know, issues, I guess. He's got daddy issues, uh, and then he's also being bullied, I guess, for not being man enough. Although this is not very well explored either. <laughs> Nothing's very well explored. <laughs> and yeah, I, I, yes, that's, that's a good way of explaining it. Yeah. <laughs> um, really, we lean into no characters. We lean into no one. We get to know no one well. Um, there are just too many people and we drone on for so long on things that don't matter. And so we end up learning about no one, um, which teaches us nothing about life, which is great. Acting was pretty much everyone except for the guy from Breaking Bad, who is the, uh, that's how I always know him. He's in Breaking Bad, uh, the, um, the managerial husband. That guy was phenomenal. I, th I thought he ate every scene that he was in. He was this, just has this weird you know, 
uh, uh, softness to him that is that it was just very particular, very well executed. It felt like he had something to lose in this film in terms of how much effort he put into the character. Unfortunately, the film didn't match his effort. Everyone else was not very good. The son was okay. I think the son was pretty good, actually. The wife, horrid, horrid acting. Very bad. <laughs> Spider-Man's girlfriend, she did not do very good in this film. <laughs> um, that's how I know her as well. Spider-Man's girlfriend uh, from the Sam Raimi films, versions of Spider-Man. And then Benedict Cumberbatch, dude, you can do a very good American accent, but you can't do, you can't do a Monta- Montana accent, man. It was painful to see you dip in and out of that accent, you know, because you couldn't hold it. And I was just like, why didn't they just write in that you have a straight American accent and give you a reason for it, especially because the character went to like a prestigious college, I think like Harvard or something like that. Yeah, like, he, he's he yeah, he's Phi Beta Kappa in classics uh, from Yale. It, oh, yeah. Which that's what is an actual. Yeah, which is actually apparently in the book a quite quite an important point, but gets just said in one sentence and tossed off, even though that is actually like pretty operative. In, I was expecting it to be pretty novel. operative after it was mentioned, and then nothing happened with it. <laughs> um, yeah, they, know, you, they make like they make the joke like they they reference it like two seconds later than the joke when he comes in and says like I think the governor's wife says like. Um, does he swear at the cattle in Latin or Greek? That's it. <laughs> exactly. that, which is not, not, not the point of that detail being in there. No. In the book. Exactly. And it was, uh, yeah, so, so Benedict Cumberbatch, if, he, if you can't do a Montana accent, please ask your director to write in that you have a straight American accent for a reason. You know, like maybe you spend so much time abroad away from, you know, home that you've developed, you know, a mostly straight American accent, uh, that would have been, you know, at least acceptable. But instead, we get a horrible reproduction of a Montana accent where actually most other people in the film actually can pull it off, which makes him look even worse. So <laughs> it just did, did not look very good. Cinematography, it was nominated for Best Cinematography, which bothers me very much <laughs> because I thought the cinematography was so boring. It was like the cinematographer literally had no direction at all. You know, he didn't know what to do. He or she didn't know what to do. And so just wandered off onto set to figure out what compositions might be interesting without meaning, you know, because there's no meaning in these shots uh, throughout this whole thing. The color grade is this really obnoxious, like gold, but like just overwrought. Like it's just it's just too overwrought. It's too simple. It looks too much like a like a almost like a student film, a well done color of a, of a student film that didn't really have much direction with the color. Visually speaking, boring. It does tries to do something clever with the opening shot, I guess, and the closing shot, and it's just textbook. You know, opening shot matches closing shot. Okay, whatever. That's 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 not special. So, uh, it, it's it's pretty bad. Uh, so I gave that one a two out of five. Oh, I also didn't say that uh, I gave um, "Don't Look Up." I think I gave it a half star, which is the lowest I could give it on, on Letterboxd. Let me do a quick over of Dune because I saw it so long ago, and it'll be quick because I I did a whole mixed media episode on Dune. You can check it out. Uh, it's called Why Dune Disappointed Me, which you can tell from it that it sort of disappointed me. I gave it a two and a half out of five, which, again, is not a negative score. That's just 
you know, neutral. I probably will forget everything that happened in that film because it wasn't very inspiring in any particular way. It winning cinematography, it was a shoe in for that because it's such a gigantic film, you know, like just literally just the scale is hard to comprehend of how you would even shoot these things. We were talking massive, massive blockbuster style, gigantic. That part was my favorite part. So it winning best cinematography didn't really bother me, especially because I didn't see any better cinematography in any of the films that I that I watched. It was very visually competent. In terms of everything else, kind of boring in my opinion. It had a lot of the same it shares a lot with the power of the dog, in my opinion, and that it had a very little to say actually. Um, and then ended in a very unsatisfying way, in a way that kind of annoyed me in terms of how this film was marketed. But that's a whole other thing. Literally, the last one I watched was Belfast. And I was going to watch uh, King Richard instead of Belfast because King, because uh, Will Smith won the uh, best uh, best actor, best lead actor award for uh, King Richard. And I've seen uh, Will Smith be phenomenal before, and so I was kind of excited to see that. But it's two hours and 20 minutes, and it, I had to watch it before the show. And I would have had time for it, but it would have made my time really crunched. So I was like, you know what? I'd rather watch Belfast, which uh, is a lot shorter, and won Best Screenplay. And I screenwriting is important to me. So I was like, you know what? Let me, let me watch that instead and uh, get my thoughts on that. So Belfast was probably not very good to watch after watching Coda because I was so overjoyed with Coda that I feel like Belfast almost felt flat to me, um, which, again, that's probably somewhat of a, an effect of, of, of watching them back to back. And I actually enjoyed Belfast. So overview again, Belfast is a film uh, about a, a Northern Irish family. I don't know the time period, and that was kind of part of... Uh, what probably would have made the film even better to me if I understood the history of, this, of the time period a little bit better. But uh, it's a, a Northern Irish family who are Protestants who uh, are living in Belfast during a time where there are these mobs that claim to be Protestant promoting mobs. It's the best way I could put it. You know, they use the label of Protestantism to, you know, carry out their mob you know, offenses against the Catholics around. And so it's about the oppression in this very mixed neighborhood between uh, Protestants and Catholics of the Catholics in that neighborhood uh, by this, uh, you know, marauding Protestant gang. But this family who has a young child, uh, a really young child, and then sort of like a middle school aged boy, and then two parents and then two grandparents, this family is a Protestant family that is not about it, right? So they're not about, you know, uh, discriminating against their Catholic neighbors. In fact, you get the sense when you watch it that pretty much no one, no normal person is really about it. You know, it's just kind of sort of a pretext for the mob to 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 riot and loot, you know, more than it is any ideological sort of problem in Belfast. So sounds very historical because it is very historical. I know nothing about it, unfortunately, even though I am Catholic, very much so. I, I am not very familiar with the events that happened here, so I can't really comment on that part of things. But the film was very good. It was a, a very slice-of-life, familial tale about this, you know, average Northern Irish family that is trying to handle raising children in such a tumultuous time that sort of randomly crops up. So that's very important that 
they were living a normal life until all of a sudden, you know, this violence breaks out that is disrupting everyone's lives. And now the question is, they don't have much money. Uh, they are so tied to Belfast that they know literally everyone for the next, like, mile in any direction. Everyone knows who they are. They know who everyone else is. Their kids can play out on the street. And there's communal parenting happening. That's the kind of place this is. And yet they feel that they're forced to leave because of all the stuff that's happening in Belfast because they can't raise children there. I think this film might have been somewhat autobiographical for uh, Kenneth Branagh because uh, it felt that way. Uh, there's a citation that's titled Autobiographical Film of Belfast. So that doesn't surprise me because it felt extremely personal. It felt like Kenneth Branagh might have been that little kid in that family uh, that was trying to make ends meet in such a tumultuous time. Whether he experienced this time period or not, I have zero clue. Uh, but what I can say is that the personalness of the film really contributed to how good this film was because we really got to understand what these sorts of things look like from a child's perspective. And the film is not really interested in larger themes at all. And pretty much its larger theme is really just roughly people are people, you know, no matter who they are, where they come from. It's not even really harped on that very much. So it's much more about the slice of life sort of thing and watching this family deal with the different problems that arise in this scenario. So in terms of the stuff I really liked about it, uh, the acting is phenomenal. Very, very great acting. The child actor, my goodness, I could not understand how to direct a child to be that great. Like, I just, he has to be the star of this entire film from, from front to end because we're watching everything through his eyes. And yet, he's riveting. And that's, that's, you know, that's a great thing. So good job. In terms of cinematography, that also stood out to me. So this film was done in black and white. Now, I assume this film was done in black and white <clears throat> on a black and white digital camera, because there are black and white only digital cameras. And there's a reason for that. And I was going to talk about the technical, interesting stuff about that. But it turns out that this was not shot on a black and white digital ca camera. It was shot on a color camera and then just made black and white after, which, uh, which is interesting because, you know, there are so many, there's a, like a movement in cinema tech around these black and white digital cameras. Um, that's really interesting. Uh, so I don't know why they went with a color camera instead and then just made it black and white after I have no, no idea. Maybe it wasn't even the idea at the front to make the whole build, film black and white because the film does not need to be in black and white. There's nothing about it that, like, you know, called to some sort of time or blah, blah, blah. It wasn't even emulating film. You know, it was very digital. It was just black and white. And I loved it. it you know, it was just a creative choice that added a lot of texture. When you make things black and white, you focus more on texture and shape and composition and light contrast. You know, you start, you get much more direction of, like, where your eye moves throughout the screen because there's less distraction in the color uh, of the film. And so in that, the cinematography is very, very well crafted, very intentional. Every shot is very intentionally done. Just the kind of cinematography I really like. Was it the you know groundbreaking cinematography, anything particularly super creative that I was like surprised? Maybe not. You know, there are a few shots here and there that felt you know, like they would be iconic for this film. Uh, but not 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 too too much. But very competent cinematography. Felt like I was in good hands the moment I started the film. The edit was very intentional. 
acting very intentional, screenplay very intentional, and cinematography very intentional, which makes you feel like you're in like warm hands. You know, I, that that feeling is very important to me at the start, feeling like I'm going to be taken care of for the rest of this runtime with at least competency. Other than that, I really don't have that much to say about the film without like you watching it. Like you just go watch it if you're interested. Because there's actually not that much to say, because as a slice-of-life personal film, it's not really trying to... It doesn't really have any particular point other than to say, these things happened, and this is what it did to these respective people, you know, which is not a bad thing, especially with the way it was done. It was entertaining. That's about it. So I give it a three and a half out of five. Not as good as, as Coda, in my opinion. So out of all the films that I watched... To me, Coda was the best picture out of them all. Is Coda like, you know, a best picture in the grand scheme of like all the best picture nominees we've had in the grand scheme of cinema? Not really, but given what cinema has been like, Coda really shocked me that this was the winner. This was the upset uh, that it won such an endearing film, and I highly recommend you watch it. That's pretty much what I all I have to say on that, I'm pretty sure. Oh, I did want to say this because I also watched Tick, Tick, Boom. Uh, so with Tick, Tick, Boom, I had very mixed feelings about. This is the hardest two and a half stars I've ever given to a film because it's not like every other two and a half stars I've given to other films in that it was just forgettable. It was two and a half stars in the sense that there were so many great things happening and there's so many really bad things happening and I didn't know what to do with that, so I ended up at two and a half stars. Uh, it was really, really a rough watch because it should have won Best Film Editing. This, the editing is phenomenal. Like, it's very hard to do what this film did in that it was unique in the way it's structured, going from scene to scene, the way the music you know, flowed from scene to scene. We have so many modes of narrative. We have the musical mode of narrative we have the voiceover mode of narrative we have the sort of like in the world mode of narrative we sometimes get a little bit third person with it we have so many modes of narrative and it all works which is crazy like that this for lin-manuel miranda miranda's directorial debut this had to be in his vision. This is not something that the editor just come, came up on their, with on their own. This is in the writing. This was planned from the beginning. And that sort of beautiful flow between different types of narrative is so commendable. I was sitting there like, Lin-Manuel, if this is your director, director's voice, I want to see this every single time. <laughs> you know, I want to see it every single time. But talk about putting a or not executing it very well, <laughs> not very, not using that such unique voice and executing it poorly. So if you got critiques, Lin-Manuel, for this film, please, the thing you don't change is this style of directing is so refreshing. I want to see more and understand how it works better because I could probably watch it again and just sit there and analyze what the heck is going on to make it work so well. It's in, in, it's a typical sort of three-act structure screenplay, so it's not really the screenplay itself that's doing it. It's the way that you've crafted your music in with the, the editing, in with the, the scene structure. It's just phenomenal. Unfortunately, there's a lot that's bad. <laughs> so a lot of the dialogue 
is horrible. There's a lot of Twitter people in this in this movie. A lot of people who speak as if they're they're tweeting. And that should never happen. <laughs> it is cringe. It I literally literally my face literally cringed at when actors just step into these horrid lines, you know? <laughs> like and I feel bad for the actor because I'm like it's not your fault. I know it's not your fault. You're just stepping into a horrible line. So there's no way this line could make you look good. Um <laughs> And Andrew Garfield is is killing it, killing it. If he won Best Actor for this film, even though this film wasn't very good to me, it would make complete sense anyway. Because he absolutely disappeared into into his character. Phenomenal. I've been impressed with Andrew Garfield for a few years now. Um, and I think he's growing to be a legend um, as an actor uh, coming from his Spider-Man days. You know, um, He's really grown a lot. Uh, he's, he's a phenomenal actor. The And the other bad stuff is this film's messaging is just all over the place. This film doesn't know what values it wants to impart onto its viewer. It complains about one thing, then embraces the same thing. It complains about another thing, then embraces the same thing. Just pick something, because I think what ended up happening, to be honest, is that Lin-Manuel wanted to celebrate the composer, rather of of uh the original um stage play the stage musical um he wanted to celebrate him but the problem with it is that celebrating him required ignoring a lot of flaws that were not resolved by the time this guy died so this clash happens where we start celebrating these obvious flaws that like no one would understand the film as promoting from the start of it, which was weird, very strange. The the central relationship in this film was horrible. It, it was it was almost useless, if not for the last act where it becomes just hard to watch this relationship <laughs> continue in this absurd manner, unrealistic, and not even style. It was just it was just so bad. The actress for his love interest is horrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> She's not very good, um, especially it, standing next to Andrew Garfield, who's murdering it. You know, it really did not bring out the, be the best of uh, image of her. It was not very good. Cinematography went from being brilliant in some scenes to being commercial in other scenes, which was really weird. Like, all of a sudden, I felt like, am I in a Hallmark movie? Or in a Clorox commercial, like all of a sudden, like, you know, we're going to a different scene. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess now we're stale and boring, you know, and and just just uninspired. And then this other scene, we have great choreography between the the the, the set, the actors, the costume, and everything coming together to great, make great cinematic images. Ah, such a hard film to watch all the way through because it's just so many different feelings going on at the same time. And as someone who's uh, attuned with the technical I found a lot of the technical things it was doing really well so interesting which probably means the average person didn't really like the, you know ended up getting lost in the, the bad parts is what I would assume based off of after af, after watching it you know a lot of people probably got lost in the bad music was great like just a, a bright spot in this film for sure which makes sense because the music is all from the original uh, stage stage play, this the stage musical. As far as I know, it's literally all from the uh, the the musical. Andrew Garfield, 
He's not the best singer in the world, but he can actually sing. <clears throat> Encanto. Uh, uh, definitely not the best singer in the world at all, but he didn't need to be auto-tuned into oblivion. So, <laughs> you know, big difference there. And Lin-Manuel also did a lot of the songs for Encanto, which were terrible. So then I'm just confused. I'm sitting here confused. But then I was like, wait, he also didn't do the music for Tick, Tick, Boom technically. So <laughs> maybe that explains that. I don't know. So yeah, those are those are my thoughts. Uh, I think Tick Tick Boom probably should have won editing, other than Dune, uh, ed- instead of Dune, because I have no idea why on earth Dune's editing would be noteworthy. I think it's just the big images and Academy voters not understanding the difference between cinematography and editing, what contributes to what. So yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. So uh, overall, I would just recommend Coda, Belfast if it particularly interests you, and uh, Tick Tick Boom if you want to see something very unique. Everything else was really bad so (laughs) but there is hope and that's what i wanted to leave off with because coda won best picture i have no idea why but maybe the calvary is coming and we'll get great cinema again you know in the oscars i have zero clue to be honest i've somewhat you know it's been weighing on my mind the way things are going with film because i'm a filmmaker and it really is demoralizing to even try anymore, you know, because it just feels like things are just so, so bad with both the theaters and, and the types of movies that we're getting and the ways the audiences are, are angered away from, 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 from cinema as an art form and, but they have no place to go. So then there's this, this sort of anxiety, you know, that's, that's building in audiences. And, but this, hopefully means maybe good things are to come if, if Coda could win. So uh, if Coda could win, maybe I can make movies. That's the conclusion that, <laughs> that I came, came with uh, afterward. So uh, if you enjoyed that, uh, if you're listening to this in post, hit the thumbs up button. Something I always forget to say is if you're on Apple Podcasts at all, you, know, you consume it on there. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. Be honest, because I want to know what the heck, you know, how we're doing over here and please leave a comment if you're going to rate it especially if you're going to rate it lowly please leave a detailed comment below as to what we could change and fix and do to be better with uh, there are some content that i noticed gets a lot more tension on podcasts than others but then there's not so much of a pattern over time and so it confuses me a little bit so really without the feedback from the audience to tell me this is what i really loved and this is why i didn't really love as much it's hard for me to, to duplicate that sort of success uh, going forward so that we can give you what you guys like besides that we have a discord if we're wrong about anything if you hate my take on don't look up uh, because there are some people who feel very strongly that is a great movie but uh if letterboxd can't even get behind a film that is supposedly ideologically aligned with most most people on letterboxd which it is a very particular bunch of people on, on letterboxd uh if they can't get if most a lot of people letterboxd can't get behind it i think i have you know I have grounds to say what I said about about uh, about don't look up. But if you think completely otherwise, get on our Discord link in the description. Uh, if you think Ben is crazy for anything he said, uh, do the same, and uh, we'll interact with you there and probably react to it on a show afterwards. And then finally, we have our locals account, which is the way you support us on mixedmedia.locals.com, where you can uh, drop us a tip for spending money on these films, <laughs> um, a lot of which are really horrible and I probably wouldn't have spent money on <laughs> to begin with, um, and taking the time to uh, uh, to give you this content and uh, also get a whole bunch of perks. So with that, 
Thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for spending so much time with us. And we'll see you next Monday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Yep. Bye. Thanks for listening and watching. Look, tell a man no trouble. I don't want beef, man. I just want vibes. Big man like me, no need for the telephone hype. I got too much getting online. One rule, then dead I'm on sight. Wrong move, I bet they gon' ride. No need for the telephone hype, nah. No need for the snoozing. Big whip outside, I'm cruising. Big stick inside, no losing. Better watch out for the snake and Judas's. Don't ask them who this is. I bet they know what I'm moving in. I bet I show it into a dim. How you hate and then lose again? How you hating my vibes? Why you wasting my time? Getting hype on my line. Tell a man I don't want feedback. I just want relax. Brand new whip, two-tone. I need that brand new hit. You know, like lean back, brand new bits. I live in we back, man. You never gonna like us. Get them on sight now. Let them all light that way. They know I'm all righteous. Look at my life. I'm living all right. I'm nice. You know I'm all right. Looking like Christ. No need for the hype or fight. All telephone vipers. No need for the telephone vipers.